Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Andrew Kraus. I'm the one of the co-founders here at InventRight. Stephen Key is the other co-founder. I want to ask that you guys type in the word yes. Not everybody needs to do it, but one or two people into the uh, live chat box to let me know that you can hear me. Uh, occasionally the audio will glitch with uh, YouTube and it won't pick up my mic and then I'll need to restart it. So if you can type yes, if you can hear me, then I know we're good to go, but I'll wait for that. There we go. Okay. Thank you, Beth. Appreciate it. Um, all right. So we're going to do a whole hour of Q&A on licensing. So what licensing is, is receiving royalties for your invention from the company that you license to. So they're going to manufacture and market it, put all their money into it, and plug it into their existing distribution and pay you a royalty. Usually the royalty is paid quarterly, every three months. So it's their money, it's their workforce, and it's their distribution. You do not need to start a business. You can license and have a full-time job. You can license and have another business. And you do not need a patent a full utility patent order to license a provisional patent is just fine, which you can get for 75 bucks. You do not need this beautiful working production prototype. Uh, most of our InventRight students just have a virtual prototype or something they cobble together. You don't need a lot of the things that you think you do need. And that's a big part of the InventRight approach. Um, a lot of people get a false sense of, and it truly is a false sense of moving forward by spending money on patents and prototypes. And that is the old school approach. And it does not work. The imprint right approach works. Um, we had uh, 11 students just last month licensed products. Very proud of that. Um, so I see Dana's on here. Dana, welcome. Um, so let's let's jump in. Um, Stefan says, hey, Andrew, is the contest just for U.S. residents or for everyone? So we are doing a contest right now. Don't quote me on this. I think it ends November 23rd. Check out the rules. You can go to inventright.com and find out more. We're giving away one one-on-one uh, -on -one coaching program, which is over $3,000 value, two academy programs, which is group coaching. And we're giving away a design studio package with a virtual prototype and sell sheet and a smart IP, which is our solution, which helps you write a provisional patent. So you just pay the patent office fee of 75 bucks and you don't need to pay some attorney thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, so Stefan, the, the contest though, is just for U.S. residents because a lot of other countries have very strict rules and we're not a giant company. We're pretty a lot bigger than we used to be. But to comply with all the countries around the world, it was just too much for us to take on. And we felt really bad about that because we have a lot of international students. We've had students in over 65 countries. Um, so Steve and I are kind of thinking like, what can we do for international students to kind of make up for that, that they can't? Um, enter. Um, so I'm sorry about that, but it's just too difficult. It would, I don't know how long it would take to comply with all the different countries. So we comply with U.S. Uh, laws as far as contests go. Um, next question, Jason, how do you know if you should submit a regular to a regular company or a DRTV company first? Prototype is ready, just needs further tooling and manufacturing, and I believe it has mass appeal. So my question for you, Jason, prototype is ready, but where's your, do you have a video or do you have a sell sheet? Um, and he may have heard me say that sometimes 
um, you'll have a product that could be right for DRTV or infomercial. Some of you may know as infomercials, but it might also be right for standard consumer products, making, let's say, kitchen gadgets or an automotive product. So I would always go in that case if it's right for both. Um, let's say it's a kitchen product and it's right for companies like KitchenAid or other companies making kitchen gadgets, but it's also right for DRTV. I would always go after the DRTV guys first. And then I would go after um, the standard consumer product companies that you guys all know and love. Um, because the DRTV companies are kind of weird. They always like to get a first crack at it. Um, and so that would be my suggestion. That's just for DRTV, guys. That's not true of other categories. Um, uh, PJS. Oh, and, and I want to remind you guys, if you could type in your first name so I don't have to read your handle, although I will. Um, if when you have a question, um, PJS, how do you know when you've entered the negotiation part of things? Um, the second a company emails you back with any questions or any interest, you're in a negotiation of sorts. And there's, I always like to explain there's two stages to a negotiation. There's initial interest to contract and then the contract to closed. And the initial interest to contract is way more important than the contract to closed. There's a lot of things you can muck up with your communications. Um, I would say, since I'm trying to educate everybody out there today, um, and always, um, a big misperception is that the company will tell you what to do next. 90% um, of the deals you're going to try to close, if you just wait for them to tell you what to do next, will die. They will fizzle out. You have to guide them as much as they're guiding you. And you're like, well, Andrew, I'm not going to tell this big company what to do. You're not telling them what to do, but you're guiding it where you need it to go. And so PJS, the, the answer is the second they email you back with showing any sort of interest, that's when you're in a negotiation. And the first stage from initial interest to the contract, those conversations, talking about the product, talking about the manufacturing of it, talking about different aspects of it, talking about their concerns and all the different things that go into that is a negotiation. Once you get to the contract, usually, unless they give it to you really soon, which is not usually the case, um, uh, you're, you're pretty good. I wouldn't say you're pretty good, but it's, it's really moved along quite a bit once you get to the contract. Um, so hopefully you found that helpful. Uh, oh, I like this one. Um, Boheme... Bohemian Hill. Hi, hi, hey, Andrew, just wanted to ask you guys, what are you looking for in an event rights student? Any tips would be nice. Um, then you can then use so much, by the way, for, oh, thank you so much, by the way, for all the information and help. Um, one, some people are surprised by this. We just don't take anybody on as an event rights student. We screen our students because I don't want one of our coaches to suffer with a student that thinks they're going to make a million dollars in two weeks with no effort. We don't want you if that's your mindset. We literally do not want you to be a student um, if you think you're going to make a million dollars in three weeks, no effort. And so we do a lot of work to set expectations. Um, I can tell you what will make a good InventRight student. You've come up with the idea. It's and I say this just to shock people. It's very little about the idea. It's more about your work ethic. No, you can't license a lump of coal. But I've seen a lot of our students with so-so ideas, but a good work ethic, licensed products, and people with mind-blowing ideas that were kind of lazy, not license them. So 
Um, what we're looking for in a good invent right student is a work ethic. Um, we have no problem with a student questioning a coach. Well, I know you're telling me to do this, but I don't think it's going to work because of this. And the coach, that's great. The coach, because you have some hesitation, the coach can say, well, yeah, I can see why you're thinking that, but actually that's not the way it works. It usually works like this, and this is why it's so important. And you're like, oh, okay, all right. And now you can go forward with a full understanding of why what you're doing is so important. Um, so I think a student that questions something somewhat, but somebody that questions everything, it's like we're not telling you to do these things um, unless they're going to be effective. Um, so somebody with some patience and a work ethic and um, logical, I guess. It, it's hard for people when they work on their first project. It's more of an emotional project. When I see our students work on their second or their third project, they get very businesslike about it. And that's just a normal, um, I think, evolution of our students. You know, you, you, you've been thinking about this thing for a long time. You've been dreaming about it. And, you know, you're a little emotional about it. But And that's normal. And it, it can happen after you have... 10, 20 years of experience doing this, of course. But um, as people do this longer, they get more business-like about it. They get more business-like about choosing the projects to work on and um, just getting the work done, setting aside the time. I always tell our students, if you have two to six hours a week, you have enough time to license, but you have to set it aside. You can't go, yeah, I'll do two to six hours a week. And before you know it, you hit Saturday and you didn't do it. And then you're having fun on the weekend and you're not working on the weekend. It can slip away from you. If you so I think discipline, work ethic, these are all things that you don't typically stereotypically see in creative people if people were to stereotype creative people. Um, but really our students aren't what you think they are. Our students are everyone from housewives to former CEOs doing everything from dog toys to medical devices save lives. Um, people with extreme ADHD to people that are extremely organized. It's all over the map. Um, but the work ethic is the biggest thing we look for in people. Ability to listen. Um, sometimes uh, students will, they're not really listening, you know, sometimes. And then the coach will go, didn't I say this like three or four times already? And, you know, we have a good relationship with our students. So coaches will say, We've talked about this four times. Like, what's the hangup? You know, and what are you worried about? What's, what are you not clear on? Um, so I always tell our students, you know, when you're working with a coach, be very transparent. Like, if you're worried about something or you don't think it makes sense to do that, just say it so the coach can fix it sooner rather than later. So we're looking for people that can be direct and to the point. But the coaches are all kind and students should be kind too. Um, so somebody that is going to be a, a good person to work with. Um, let's see what else we got here. So thank you for that question, Bohemian Hill. Um, Raul, hey, Andrew, what if I can't find a company that seems to have the type of product I have to offer? What do I do then? Well, that's not really what you're looking for. So you're not looking for a company that's doing the exact same type of product. That's a big mistake I see our students make over and over again not really our students. It's more like our fans. When people become a student, the coach kind of catches it really early on when they're making their list of companies. Um, but some people think like, well, I'm making a, um, I'm making a doorstop so I can only contact companies making doorstops. No, they could be making other things for the house 
And they didn't really want to get into doorstops because they're kind of generic, but they're making other gadgets and gizmos for the house. And you should reach out to those companies as well. So don't feel like you just want to approach companies that are somewhat in the same space of your invention and currently have distribution of stores where you want to be. So rule the answer is um, they don't need to have the exact same product. They just need to be in that same space or category. And those companies, obviously, you know, if you were a student, I'd look at the product and I go, oh, well, Google image it. Oh, well, what about that type and that type and that type of company? Company selling this and that. So, but it's something I can at least generally answer. Don't look for just companies making more or less the exact same thing. That is going to limit your list and it's going to limit your potential for success. So don't do that. Um, Okay. Yeah, Debbie's asking, hello again, Andrew. The services that are included at the one-on-one coaching, Smart IP, Design Studio, et cetera, are they included for just one idea during the six months? So no, we, we do not limit our students to one project during six months. We insist that you start only with one. Once you get the initial calls in, then you can talk to your coach about, you can talk to your coach about other ones before that. Then you earn the right to work on a second, a third one. And, um, and, that's, and we encourage that because you get experience with more than one. It's great. Um, with Smart IP specifically, you can file unlimited provisional patents with that. With Design Studio, our students get one free sell sheet and one um, virtual prototype. So beyond that, you need to pay for them. But I think for when you're a student, like a sell sheet's like 80 bucks, very affordable. Um, I forget what a virtual prototype is, but that's pretty affordable too. So if you need, if you're going to do a second product, you need to pay for that. But there's nothing else we try to sell you. Um, so, and guys, these, people are just asking me these questions. I'm not just trying to pitch a program. People are asking these questions a little more than normal, so I'm just answering them. Um, uh, Teresa says, how do we enter the contest? Teresa, if you just go to inventright.com and there's going to be a pop-up that pops up, you can click on that pop-up and it'll get you to that page. Um, and if for some reason it's not popping up, maybe a pop-up blocker or something, um, you can just call the main number and they can get you the link. Uh, main phone number or email us too. Uh, uh, PJS says, how do you find a graphic designer for your sell sheet when you don't have the InventRight Design Studio? So, um, you know, you can find graphic designers and some of them will work pretty cheap. But here's the thing. Graphic designers, not all of them, but most graphic designers aren't marketers. So if you go to them and you hand them junk, you hand them the wrong benefit statement, the wrong bullet points, the wrong ideas for the pictures, what you're going to end up with is a pretty piece of junk. So our students work with a coach very intensely. It's very intense. And we're very anal about making sure that the benefit statements right, the bullet points are right, the marketing's right, the pictures are right. And it's all based on the research that the coaches forced and encourage the student to do. And then they look at the research with the other products in that space. And so the student and the coach figure out what the marketing needs to be. And then we send it to our design studio. Our design studio are just are basically just like all other designers in that their job is strictly to make it look pretty and to make it beautiful. Yeah, they're going to know certain things like it's a medical product, like blues and grays are good for a medical product, things like that. They know that, um, but they're not going to do the marketing. Um, and so my advice at PJS, if you're going to use somebody else other than our design studio, or you're not going to become a student of ours is if you're going to find a designer, 
that you, um, you make sure you did the marketing. Do not expect them to do the marketing for you. So that's really key. Um, also realize on some websites like Fiverr, um, it says if you don't uncheck a certain box, you're agreeing for them to put your marketing materials up in their portfolio. You do not want that public disclosure. So be very careful about that. Make sure you're not giving anybody permission to publicly show your product as part of their portfolio. You do not want that. Okay, so be very careful about that. Um, so how do you find a graphic designer? God, I mean, you can throw a rock and hit a graphic designer these days. So there's a lot of websites where you can find them. Um, Upwork, Fiverr, these different sites like that. Um, John, I have an idea that I've been starting on for a while. S oh, sorry, sitting on for a while. I was going to say starting for a while. Well, you didn't get started if you're starting for a while, but you didn't write that. You were sitting on it for a while. I really just need to know where to start. Can you give me some steps? Yeah, start with step number one, John. So study the micro category of your invention. If you have a doorstop or a wine bottle opener or a barbecue spatula, I'm about to sneeze here. So I'll combine that. I'm very efficient, so I'm going to take a drink of water while I'm about to sneeze. I thought maybe it'd help me with my sneeze. There we go. I didn't sneeze. You guys do not want to hear me sneeze because I have like the loudest sneeze. The only person who has a louder sneeze than me is my dad. Um, so... Uh, First steps for John. So, John, let's say you have a doorstop. You need to know every freaking doorstop out there. Most inventors do not do this. Google Images is one of the best places to do that. So you go to google.com slash images or just go to Google, type in your search, and then you'll see it, images, shopping, other buttons. Click on the images button and you'll see all these images of other doorstops. You need to understand every one, their price point, there's, you, know, you kind of start to group them. There's five over here that do this, and there's the ones that do this, and ones that fold down, and ones that are free, and you know all the different doorstops. And that can take two to six hours to do, to become an expert of the microcategory invention. It's fun. So now the, here's the one that's not fun. People get anxiety about it. So a lot of people, their misperception is, well, I'm going to prove you're not consciously thinking this. But you're seeing stuff. Oh, that sucks. Oh, that sucks. Oh, that sucks. Oh, I haven't found mine yet. Oh, that sucks. You will waste your time beyond belief if you have that attitude. Wrong attitude. Never, ever say as an inventor, ever. There's never an instance where it's okay to say it. There's nothing like it. Instantly, any marketing person, anybody at a company, is go, oh, my God, not another one of these guys. Never, ever say it. I don't care if you think it, you can think it. You shouldn't even be thinking it because there's always something like it. There's always something that maybe solves a problem, but not the same way, or there's some, something like it, but not it. Okay, so never, ever say that. But getting back to your research, when you're doing your research, you don't want to have that mindset all wrong. You want to really study the marketplace, all the doorstops in the market, and you go, oh, mine fits in here. Or, you know, mine is serving a need that nobody else is serving, like, these eight doorstops over here, they're coming close. And I know those are selling well, and there's a ton of them. So I'm just going to make this slight tweak so mine's on the shelf next to these other eight that I know are selling well because they're in the market. They wouldn't be there if they weren't selling. And I think a good percentage of people are going to choose mine over that one. So slight improvements can be a great thing, you know, when you're licensing. So to answer your question, John, is study the marketplace. Look at the products 
that are in your micro category. Now, when you study the micro category, don't make it too big. So let's let's use my silly. I'm always doing. I don't barbecue much, but I always use it as an example. To study all barbecue accessories would be a little overwhelming. Okay, it's too much. You get all these different things. You got smokers. You got spatulas. You got tongs. You got cleaners. You got all sorts of too much, too much. But let's say you're doing a barbecue spatula. Could you study all the barbecue spatulas in two to six hours? Yeah, you could. That's doable. So kind of figure out the micro category of your invention, like doorstops or barbecue spatulas or um, uh, frying pans that are just for eggs. I saw one the other day. It's for cooking a single egg or something like that. I think I think it, my wife bought it, ended up in my eight-year-old daughter's pretend kitchen. I'm like, what is that? She's like, oh, that was mom's. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that was the one for that single egg. So um, figure out what the micro category is. So you, so you can study it within two to six hours. Have fun with it. Don't be anxious about it. Now, here's another tip. If you do that research, the second you come up with an idea, it will reduce your anxiety. If you think about the idea, longer you think about it, a month, two months, six months, a year, two years, the more in love you've fallen with your idea and the least likely you're, you're going to be objective about looking at these other products in the space. Okay. If you're already there, fine. Just the fact that I'm saying all this stuff is going to get you in the right mindset. So you can tell I love that question. Um, let's see. That was John. Thank you, John. On how you could get started. So hopefully I didn't overwhelm you with that. Google Images, Amazon. These are all Google Shopping too. Um, these are all my three favorite places. Google Shopping, Google Images, and Amazon. I would say my top is Google Images. Second is Amazon. Third is Google Shopping. I would use all three. Um, and, you know, one thing you don't get on Google Images, Google Shopping is reviews. I think maybe Google Shopping you do. I'm not sure. I haven't looked on there in a while. But Amazon, I love those reviews. Those are great. You can see what people are complaining about. That's a little more time intensive once you get deep down in those reviews, but they can be very valuable. Um Let's see what else we got here. Nick says, should I mention I'm a student to companies I want to license to or should I leave it out? Thank you so much. You're awesome. Thank you, Nick. Um, no, I, I mean, there are plenty of companies that know who InventRight is, but also some of them might get us confused with these sleazy invent this or invent that companies that have names that are somewhat similar to these these. Um, uh, invention promotion companies. So, you know, no, I mean, how could the InventRight name, how could tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of companies know who InventRight is? So no, don't mention you're a student of InventRight. It's not necessary. Although the companies that know that they're getting a lot of ideas from our students, they consistently comment, man, like InventRight students, like the stuff they send us, the sell sheets are like 10 times better than anything we get from other inventors. And li they literally say 10 times better. It's that much better. They have to sift through so much garbage. It's crazy. And our students present themselves very professionally. They get a sell sheet that they can get in six seconds, which when I see sell sheets from non-invent rate students, it is extremely rare. I would say maybe one in 20, one in 30 would actually accomplish that six seconds I got it. Some of them are okay, but you don't want okay. You want them not to have to make any effort to understand your product by looking at your sell sheet. And that's not easy to do. 
And we make our students an expert in that. Um, uh, Nick says, also, have you reached out to universities to do workshops? Yes, we've worked with universities. We worked with the University of Newcastle. We actually have a university right now that's interested. Um, and so we have a lot of interest from universities and we're starting to, to approach that definitely because I think there's, they could really be helped by our approach to licensing. Um, uh, I don't know. Raging Thunder says, Hey brother, Marine Corps vet here. Thank you for your service. Uh, I don't know. I'll just call you Rage, I guess, since you don't you didn't put your name. Uh, I love your stuff. Anyways, big question. What is a good bank to be associated with to run your business? You don't need to open up, you know, I don't know. You know, when you do a licensing deal, we always advise you find an LLC or corporation. But, you know, most of our students, you don't even need a bank account until you do your first deal and open up that corporation. So I don't know, any bank? I don't, I've never gotten that question in 20 years. Uh, I don't think it's important at all what kind of bank you use. I would use a major bank. You're, there's a lot of scams going on right now with COVID. So be careful about that. Um, we knew this uh, inventor group leader and somebody had filed for the payroll protection plan money under this inventor group, got $18,000. And now the small business administration is coming after the poor inventors association because so, so I would go with a, a, a bank. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the major banks. Um, God, some of the stuff they do is terrible, but just one that's reputable and, you know, if support a small local bank should be just fine too. Um, uh, uh, German Tate, uh, German, I don't know, I, I'm pronouncing that right, I'm sorry. Uh, what should be on a sell sheet? Benefit statement, big benefit statement at the top. We've done some YouTube videos on it, um, so you can go on our YouTube channel and look. But big benefit statement at the top, maybe bullet points. I would Normally I don't want people going more than five max. Really, I prefer three, um, or if you have to do two sets of three, maybe different places. But people will try to like make this laundry list of like 10 bullet points. Now, five max, I prefer three or four. And then um, picture of your product, maybe a smaller picture, um, not four equal size pictures. Sometimes you'll have a storyboard at the bottom. You'll have your contact info at the bottom, your email, your phone number, some sort of title. So German Tate um, Designs. Um, German Tate designs a Gmail and then put your cell phone number on there and they'll have your kids screaming on your cell phone and you're good. All that stuff is free. You can get a Gmail for free. Um, you can put a title on there and all that stuff should be on the sell sheet. Um, okay. Abel says, hi, Andrew. My name's Abel. I have an invention that I recently got a patent on and would like you to recommend what I do next, I'd really appreciate the feedback. Okay, so um, first off, Abel, um, don't do the patent thing next time. Next time, file a, maybe you're talking about a provisional patent. If provisional patent, great. But don't run out and file a patent every time you come up with an idea. The invent right approach is to file a provisional patent like the week, ideally, the week before you're ready to start call. And then um, file it then. Then you got a whole year to see if there's interest. 
you'll never need that year. You'll get feedback from companies quicker than that. Now, some of you are probably like, well, I already filed a provisional, Andrew. Like, if you haven't made public disclosure, you can file that provisional again, get another year from the new provisional. You can't continue the old date. So don't freak out. If you, oh, I filed a provisional, am I screwed now? No, you're absolutely not. Um, but don't go out and file a patent again. It's just not worth the financial risk. When you're licensing, you've got a whole year for 75 bucks to see if there's interest. And if there is, get them to give you the money. You give that money to your patent attorney. Your patent attorney references your provisional. So don't file a patent every time. Now, we have tons of students that come on board with us that have already filed patents. That's fine. It's an asset. But if you don't end up licensing it, it's a huge liability. You spend eight or 10000 on a patent. How many times are you going to be able to keep doing that before your spouse or yourself or go, I can't do this anymore? So there's no reason to take that financial risk is what I'm saying. And ABLE, maybe it's a provisional patent. And in that case, it's perfectly fine. Um, but even then, if you go with the patent attorney, it, it can cost you, you know, $1,500, um, I mean, at the very least, a thousand to, to do that. So file a provisional patent. In our smart IP software, you can do that yourself. Um, so the the so basically the fact that you file a patent, sometimes people get feel this. Sometimes people come to us and they say, "Well, I'm so far ahead." And I go, "Okay, what have you done?" And they filed a patent. They made a prototype. I'm like, "You're not that far ahead. You filed. You threw a bunch of money to patent attorney, and you made a." prototype the prototype things okay but um so they get this false sense of being so advanced and so ahead i'm like where's your research where's your sell sheet where's you know where do you know how to reach out to companies why would you do any of this if you don't know how to reach out to companies what's the point right so but abel let's get back to your question you filed a patent the next thing i would do is do what you may have not done Sometimes people go to patent attorneys. The patent attorney does a search for them. Oh, I didn't find anything. And so the inventor thinks like that's the reason to file a patent. That's absolutely not a reason to file a patent. You always do a market search first. You figure out what's in the marketplace. Remember I talked about the micro category? You figure out what's out there. You figure out how your product fits in. And you might want to tweak what your product is based on your research. If you go, I'll spend 10000 on a patent. And now you're going to have to file another $10,000 patent. You know, why? That's craziness. That's absolute craziness. So, Abel, um, if you're filed a patent, go back, do the research, see if you studied the marketplace. Um, then you need to start making your list of companies. Then you need your marketing presentation. We call it a sell sheet or a video sometimes. And then you need to start reaching out to companies. You can use the phone. You can use LinkedIn. You can use email. We Our students use all three. We don't just use one. And... Um, and start reaching out to companies. There's the basics. But the basics is if you haven't done your research and you only did patent searching, you need to do a market search, you should have never filed a patent before doing that. Um, and, and But again, you know, I'm just using you to talk about this fictional scenario. Maybe you filed a provisional. So I don't even know. Um, but great question. Thank you, Abel. Um, uh, TY51, I have a product idea that requires the use of another product that already exists on the market. Is that a potential problem? God, I've been getting this question for 20 years. Is that a potential problem? And should I approach the company for that existing product first? So it depends. I would need to see the product to say for sure. So we're going to speak generically here. Most products are not patented, people. So if you see TY1 litmus test, you can use. If you see like eight companies 
making a product that has that, there's more than likely no patent on it. So if you want to take that piece and bring it over here and then change it, you're probably fine. If you see eight companies using it, and then the, and because if eight companies are using it, there's probably no patentability on that mechanism, right? And most products aren't patented. Don't think every, do you think every company patents every idea they work on? Hell no, <laughs> they don't. Um, so it might not be an issue at all. Um, and like, for instance, like Velcro, you don't need permission from Velcro. I mean, you can buy generic hook and loop fastener. That's the generic version of Velcro. You don't need to call Velcro to get permission to put Velcro on your product. And it's the same thing for other things. So without knowing your product specifically, I can't answer your question, but it, most of the time it's not a problem. Um, but it's one of those things you got to look at the product. But when I do, rarely does it a problem, but it could be. Um, uh, PJS about a year ago I was doing the one-on-one -on -one coaching but then gave up on my uh, invention four months in these videos are motivating me now I'm talking to a company can I still use Paul as the negotiation coach Re reach out to me um, drop me an email I, I need to look up your record drop me an email at andrew at inventright.com I don't even know your real name, PJS, and and uh, we'll we'll take a look and see how we can help you. Okay, so drop me an email at Andrew and Invent Right. I'll personally um, take a look at it. Uh, okay, Bravo says hello, Andrew. Your thoughts on intent to use trademarks? Thoughts? Yeah, our feeling. Um, you know, I, I call it a common law trademark. I think most trademark attorneys, patent trademark attorneys would call it that. And so there's two types of trademarks. There's the common law trademark, which is a little TM with a circle around it. And then there's a the registered trademark, which you guys have seen as well with the R and the circle around it. The common law trademark, literally all you have to do is you come up with a clever name for your invention, put it on a sell sheet. And you're like, you know, I think that's a really good name. I think they might want that. And you put that little circle with the TM. And what it's saying is you intend to use it. And it creates kind of a certain amount of perceived protection. Trademarks aren't like patents, guys. You can't get a trademark, even a registered trademark. You can pay for a registered trademark and not use it in commerce. You have to use it in commerce. But the intent to use, whether it's a registered mark or a common law mark, you know, you still have to end up using it in commerce. But before using commerce, you can kind of, it's kind of putting people on notice, kind of putting your mark on it pun intended, I guess, you know, showing people you intend to use. So the way that our students use it is because a good percentage of the time, they're not going to like the name. They, it doesn't matter. I know every inventor thinks their name's the best thing in the world. And sometimes a lot of our students, you know, they'll have just a descriptive name. You know, it's not the name they're going to use and that's better. So to have these like clever cutesy name, sometimes that backfires. Like to understand the name, you need to fully understand the product, go back and then you're like, oh, now I know what it is. I don't tend to like those, you know? Um, so, you know, fanciful names are like Kleenex. Like a generic name is facial tissue, right? And so Kleenex doesn't mean anything. Like if you made up this generic name, called it Kleenex, and nobody knew what Kleenex was before, they'd be like, that's just weird. So it doesn't usually, be careful about getting too cutesy with it. But this is how our students use trademarks. So they'll do the sell sheet, they'll put the little TM, and in the chance that the company's interested, and they're like, oh, we love the name, ask them. And then, then you can file the registered trademark, right? And then you can license that as a package to them with the trademark 
and your provisional patent, and you can license the product and the name all together. But they want to change it so frequently for you to go out and spend $1,500 on a trademark, not even knowing if they're interested in the name. It's just not a worthwhile risk to take. And everything I share with you guys tonight is not legal advice. Seek the services of an attorney before you, before you do anything at all. But that is our business approach to making sure you guys don't just blow money. A lot of people get a false sense of moving forward when they're new to this, thinking that if I spend money, I'm moving forward. And that would be one example, um, filing patents, spending tons of money on a prototype where you didn't need, which is pretty obvious how it's going to be made. Why did you need to even make it? Um, so don't get a false sense of moving forward by spending money because it's, it's, I see so many inventors making that mistake. Um, let's see what else we got here. Uh, Raging Thunder says, sorry, man. Second question, can my LLC name be my trademark name? Vice versa. I don't know it, why. Yes, it can be, but why do you? Nobody cares. You could have the stupidest name in the world for your LLC. Nobody cares. So, and come up with a nice, I just use your surname, put designs behind it. So then what that does is, um, let's say your actual name, let's say your name is Bob Smith. So you put Bob Smith designs. So you'd be designing medical devices one day and dog toys the next, and it always works. But if you say, you know, Bob Smith's medical design incorporated or something, well, now you're doing a dog toy. Now you're going to use that name. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So, um, but sometimes people, they want to make their company name that one product, but that's one product. I would certainly hope that most of you would want to license more than one product. Yes, that one product's what you're focused on now. So I don't think you would normally make the LLC name um, the name of the product. No, I don't think that would make sense. I'd make it something more generic you can use forever with all your products. Um, Paul says, hi, Andrew. If I have a water bottle invention, which, which industrial, which in industry should I approach a water bottle invention? Well, you'd approach companies that make water bottles because they want to make more. So, and there's, that's a hot category. Oh my God. I mean, at my house, we have way too many water bottles because everyone we buy, is never good enough. And we're always looking for that better water bottle. You know, I think these double, double wall bottles are really, really popular right now. Started with Hydro Flask, I think. And now everybody else is doing them too. They're really effective. Uh, but, you know, some of them, they dribble, you knock it over. My God, my family has so many water bottles, and I think most families do. Um, so you're going to approach companies that sell water bottles. You know, it's just that simple. And there's a ton of them. There's a ton of them. Now, could you approach companies not making water bottles, but are very big and similar, like a, uh, that product category, like they're making other products for home use or for camping or or for things like things like that. And maybe they're like, well, we don't want to get a water bottle. Everybody's in there, but we're doing lunch boxes now. And oh, with your product so cool. Yeah, we might get in water bottles. So that's an example of expanding it out a little bit. Um, I don't know who gets lunch boxes these days. People do though. That's just a silly example, but you get the idea. Uh, John says, thank you so much. I'm going to sign up as a student. Great, John. That's well, it's fantastic. Um, and if you have any questions for me before you do, you're welcome to, to call the main office and ask to talk to me. 
Lucas says, hi, Andrew, does, does and can InventRight help you create the marketing materials and visual prototypes, or do you just teach students the process? No, with our one-on-one coaching program, the, the marketing materials, the sell sheet, and the virtual prototypes included, we have a whole design department that does that, that's included with the coaching. And we found that it's really great. We didn't always have that. And it, it, it slowed our students down. So it gets our students going with their first project. So they're not getting hung up on those things. And you can use somebody else in the future for a virtual prototype or a sell sheet. If you can become very prolific and you're doing, you know, five new, 10 new, 15 new products a year, you know, you're probably not going to use us anymore, but it's a good way to get going with things. Um, so yes, we, that's included. Uh, Uh, Bravo said, hello, Mr. Andrew. Thoughts on intent to use trademark use? Okay. Um, I think that was the one I answered earlier. Um, been asking this for three weeks. Okay. Did I answer it, Bravo? Or are you just trying to sell a trademark? I, I, I don't, I, you know, so can you, I think I answered it earlier, but if I didn't, I went in, in depth with the trademark thing. But if you're let me know if you're trying to sell the actual trademark by itself without an invention. And I'll answer that if that's your question. Um, uh, worldwide engraving. Hello, Andrew. My invention is very simple idea, but very useful. And I'm afraid that if I share it with big organizations, they'll just take it. Well, what I can, what I can tell you is in the 20 years we've been doing this in InventRight, we've never had a single one of our students get knocked off by a company they presented to. So now our students are being professional, great sell sheets, well-written emails, professional on the phone. So that three or 4% of companies that might consider, I think it's about what it is, might consider knocking you off, don't want to mess with you. But they might mess with that wacky inventor. And I've talked to some wacky inventors and they've told me about their communications with the company. And in some scenarios, what happened is the company was interested. They started moving forward. They started taking action. And they started doing things, making prototypes, doing stuff. And they didn't talk to the inventor. They didn't know the inventor was a whack job. And the inventor's like, I want a half million dollars up front. And the company's like, what? And I talked to this one inventor not too long ago. And he's like, oh, I insisted. I said, it's non-negotiable to the company. I'm like, I, I didn't say it to the guy, but I'll say it to you guys. The dude's a freaking idiot for saying that. And then he wondered why the company, not that it was okay, wasn't okay, Company went around him and did it anyway. Now, because the guy didn't know what he's doing, he didn't have a leg to stand on as far as his patent and everything else, and they went ahead and did it. Now, I've had other inventors that said, you know, oh, this company knocked me off. And I'm like, well, how do you know that? Well, I, I showed it to him three weeks ago, and now it's on the market. And I'm like, it's on their website. I'm like, uh, no company can launch a product in three weeks and put it on their website. That's not possible literally not possible. And so there's a lot of different scenarios in which people have these weird ideas. Um, it's not okay for any company to take your idea, but if you conduct yourselves professionally, this is what I'm saying, that is a major form of protection over and above and m a lot of times more important than any patent. They don't want to mess with you. They're, they're really afraid. Most companies are afraid of you guys. They're afraid of you um, suing them. They're terrified. Of that. And that's why some companies don't receive ideas. So don't think companies are out there knocking folks off. With Steven, he had a little incident with Legos. But Legos, 
is a family company. Isn't that amazing that they're that big and it's a family company? Most companies have a board of directors and they're, they have all sorts of oversight and they're very, very careful. So don't, don't think that's happening all the time because it's not. Um, uh, Enshaw, Paul, Paul, oh, Paul says, is Smart IP secured and how? So our we teamed up with Pat Attorney Gene Quinn, and he we we set it up. It's very secure. We've never had an issue. Nobody can see that except for the inventor. So um, and but if you're not comfortable with that, just pay a patent attorney fifteen twenty five hundred bucks instead of seventy five bucks. Um, we have I don't know how Enshaw how well you know us, but we have an incredible reputation. We've been around almost twenty one years now. And if we were taking people's ideas, you people would know about it. So um, if you know us well enough, go for it. If you don't trust us, then don't. But it's very, very secure, um, smart IP. Um, uh, huh? That's interesting. Mike says, hi, Andrew. What if I get a licensing deal with my patent? Well, first off, you don't need to have a patent to get a licensing deal. So you might have filed a provisional and they're like, we don't care about patents. Yeah, we'll pay you royalties. So that's kind of a side answer. But what if I get a licensing deal with my patent? Then I want to move to another country. Will there be any problems? No, not at all. Not in any way, shape or form. They'll just send you the check just like they always have. You just tell them where to send it. We've had students in over 65 countries. And so if people in Africa and Europe and Australia and Canada and Asia can license their products and receive royalties. You being in the U.S., if that's where you are, and you move to another country, that's not a problem at all. It doesn't matter where you are. You could be on the beach in Thailand. You could be in California. You could be um, in uh, French Canada, you know, in Quebec, you know, freezing your butt off. You could be anywhere you want. It doesn't matter. Uh Abel says, thank you for the love and the feedback. You're welcome, Abel. Let's see. Now I lost track of where I was. Uh, Here we go. Kyle says, help! Exclamation mark. That's not good. Don't be so desperate, Kyle. You'll be fine. We'll get your question answered here. Um, I'm just joking. Uh, if I have an idea, an app idea, and I want to license it to a development company in China, you know, this isn't sounding good. Should I go about it as a simple PPA in an NDA here going to matter at, is an NDA here going to matter at all? Okay. So first off, it's very rare you're going to be licensing to a Chinese company. Um, we had this one student that licensed he was an Israeli student, actually. He licensed an entire toilet to a Chinese company. But this Chinese company, which is still fairly rare, had distribution in Home Depot. They had toilets in Home Depot. So he was an Israeli student talking about international. He licensed this company. They had distribution in Home Depot. Great. I don't see that as any different than an American company then, okay? Because they're doing business in the U.S. Then I had this other student. He was a French-Canadian actually living in the Yukon. And he licensed to a Chinese company a whole line, like eight camping products. They showed him one. They're like, what else you got? What else you got? And he ended up licensing eight products at once 
to a Chinese company. But that Chinese company already had distribution in the U.S. and Canada for selling camping products. And this would just be so another product in their product line or eight products in that case. So we're seeing a lot of Chinese companies selling on Amazon now. But historically, you don't see Chinese companies marketing and at retail yet. You, you are seeing them. And it is becoming more prevalent, but it's still few and far between. So you're not licensing the Chinese companies. Kyle, I'm going to answer it generally for everybody, but then I'll get back to your specifics of your question. You're not licensing the Chinese companies. You just aren't. Um, now, you've got another issue. So you can license it to a company selling apps. I don't recommend most of you to work on apps. Now, everybody and their grandmother these days has an app idea because we all have our our phones or apples or android phones or whatever it is that we have and we have our tablets and everybody has an idea for a new app. oh you have an app you should do this the thing is the software geeks look at you and go well that's a great they, it's not like physical products that's not a great idea dude but that's going to take six guys in a room a year to program so the the app geeks they don't have a lot of respect for just an idea so now if i have somebody that's a software programmer and they come to me and they've been in the software industry forever and they got an idea for an app, I'd say, great, there's no difference between you and somebody licensing a dog toy or a medical device because you have a background. When they ask you those questions, what backend database are we going to use? What are we going to do here? What are we going to do there? And as a software developer, you know the difference between somebody that a, pro a program that's going to take six guys in a room a year to program or something could be programmed in a week. But the average... Joe that uses apps has no freaking idea. And, and the app guys don't like that. They don't respect that. And that's just true with apps. So, but if you're a software program, I'd say, yeah, great. There's no difference. You know, you know how to talk intelligently with them. You can license that just like anybody else can license a dog toy or an automotive product or a medical product. But if you have no background, you don't have any technical background, licensing apps isn't really something you should be trying to do. Definitely not with a Chinese company. I, that's just like, that's a mess. App, Chinese company, oh, that's like, that's that's a recipe for disaster. That's not going to. Now, if you're telling me you're a software developer and that's your business and you know it and, you know, but, and if that Chinese company is selling in the U.S., okay. But if they're just going to sell in China, there's not much respect for intellectual property in China for stuff that sells in China. I mean, they sell fake iPhones and stuff there. It's crazy. Um, so, you know, there's my there's my very long answer, Kyle. So if you got if you have no technical background in apps and you go like, oh, well, Andrew, I have a dog toy. I have a I have this uh, home storage organization product. I got this or that. Work on one of those. Don't do the app because apps, they expect to see more developed. You can't just have a virtual prototype. It's a lot more involved. And the app developers are more resistive to doing licensing deals. So can it be done? Yes. Should most of you be doing it? No. Um, okay. Why do you guys always have so many questions on DRTV? It's always such a, people are interested. Um, Okay, so uh, 
Anita. And hi, Andrew. How do you approach a situation where you work with an As Seen on TV company? They showed interest. Great, Anita. Congratulations. And they want to do a web test. Great. Sounds great. Want and but want you to negotiate a lower manufacturing price from twelve to ten dollars. Well, why would you do that? If they're a serious DRTV company, why wouldn't they would be the one negotiating lower manufacturing price and getting those quotes? Now, maybe what they're saying to you is, eh, we need to get the manufacturer cost down from 12 to 10. Can you help? Can you get quotes? But for the most part, if they're a serious DRTV company, they should be the ones getting those quotes and getting that price down. Now, you might have a suggestion on how to reduce the price. Well, you know, we could probably make it more cost effective by doing this, doing that. So work with them to see if you can come up with some ideas because a lot of people in these companies, I'm not talking about DRTV companies, any corporation or any big company, they're not as creative as you and me. So you might have some suggestions on reducing the cost there and then let them get the quote. You, sh you shouldn't be having to do that. That's a red flag if they're asking you to do it. That makes no sense. That's not a serious DRTV company if they're asking you to get a quote. But maybe that's not what they're asking. They're just asking, do you have any ideas for reducing the cost on this? It's a little too high because DRTV is very price sensitive. Um, could, so Anita said, could this be a deal breaker and what to do in this case? Just what I just said. Try to talk to them about it. Try to reduce the cost. Anything you can do to help. But that really should be their job. Ida said, you answered my question. Thank you. Great. Great, Ida. Um, Raging Thunder says, thanks, buddy. Thank you. Uh, Kyle says, I'm so tech savvy in my 24 years old. I know for a fact that my app idea could be close to a unicorn, not quite a unicorn, but very close. <laughs> That's funny. But for it to be my vision, I needed development company in China. Oh, okay. So he was talking about somebody to help him with the programming. Um, yeah, I wouldn't, uh, sorry, Kyle, I, I wouldn't trust a programmer in China. You know, they'll make it for you, charge you a bunch of money. It goes out the back door to somebody else. You know, I, I knew this one gentleman, he was actually an executive at Clorox and he created this app that you put it on your phone and it will track when you're driving your speed so that if you get a speeding ticket, you can use it as proof in court um, that you weren't speeding. I thought it was interesting. But he tried, he worked, this is how long, this is an, an executive, a former executive at Clorox, not a stupid guy. He's a really smart guy. But he was new to apps. And he had this company in India working on it for two and a half years. And he's just, after a while, he just pulled the plug. He went to a U.S. company. They got it done. I think they got something done in about six months and it was beautiful and it was great. And so a lot of these uh, programmers in particular, I've, we personally have this experience, which we don't do anymore with websites and things. They'll quote you one price and they're just a mess. It's incredibly disorganized, takes 20 times longer than they say. And then they tack on all these other charges. And China is going to be the same thing as India there. So if you find somebody that's reliable, I'm sure you could find a reliable programmer, but don't expect them not to sell it out the back door somewhere else. It's very likely. So, and what I found with this gentleman that I, that I talked to, a friend of mine, um, 
He went with a U.S. program, more expensive, but it was actually less expensive because it got done quickly. And he's like, I'm never going with India with programmers again. So you should be worried about it's not the company. It's not in China. You're not licensing it to a Chinese company is what you're clarifying. You want a Chinese program to help you program it. And you do need more. Um, And you also said you're very savvy. Um, I don't know if you're planning on launching it yourself, but our whole business model is the license. I don't know if you want to license the app, but um, yeah, if you could find somebody affordable in the U.S., you might be better off. But yeah, it doesn't matter what they sign in the way of an NDA. It could still go out the back door to somebody else, the same exact program. And then somebody else is selling the same thing on the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store, and that would suck. Um, Okay, uh, Bohemian Hill, my name is Sebastian. I was wondering what is the most effective way for to keep your ideas down, organized. It's going to be different for everybody. And also, what's your favorite notebook to use? So it could be in a physical notebook. My favorite online solution, people that are new to it, sometimes you get these, these software programs, and I'm guilty of this. I, it's this magical program that's going to make you totally organized. But if you're not organized and you're not using the solution in an organized way, it's not going to make you organized. So sometimes keeping it more simple can be a way of staying organized. Um, Evernote is a free solution. They also have paid versions, um, which I have. And it's an amazing note-taking tool. You can bookmark websites, pictures. You can copy just parts of websites. An amazing note-taking tool. But it's a little too geeky for a lot of you. You can keep it simple. You can just bookmark stuff in your browser. You have a folder in your browser. You create a folder in your browser. And then you start bookmarking and dragging those websites into that folder. Maybe you have subcategories. Create folders in your browser. Do bookmarks in there. Even a lot of browsers, you know, will give you the ability to make notes, too, on what you had, the thought you had on that web page. So you, that's free. Anybody can use that. Evernote's free, to the basic version. I recommend going with the... The, I don't know if I'm grandfathered in with the one step up from the free version, which is what I have. It's an amazing tool. Um, it's kind of hard to keep track of all your research and everything. Your, your ideas you can keep in a notebook. Um, but Evernote, you could keep your ideas. You could keep your drawings. You could keep your research. Um, that's amazing. Um, so I don't have a favorite notebook. In InventRight, we don't sell a notebook. Um, you know, it's it's not really that critical, the inventor's notebook anymore from a legal perspective, but from a keeping organized perspective, I think it's incredibly important. Um, I would recommend a stitch notebook like those marble black and white notebooks. That's just going back to when it meant a lot that it was stitched because you can't pull out the pages. But it's really not that important these days um, as far as a legal perspective. But I think most inventors keep it up in their head. And I think that's a mistake. So I think that the advice I'm going to give you is do write it all down. And it can be messy. Like, um, you know, it doesn't have to be beautiful. But if you go back and you look at it and you're like, I don't even understand my own drawing, well, that can be a problem. Um, so you might, you know, in Evernote, you can bookmark things on certain websites and go, well, it's like this product. And then you give a written description on the change. Maybe you can't draw a stick figure, you know, and you're, you're giving a written description of what your change is. So um, I think keeping organized is very, very important. I don't have one particular solution. I would keep it as simple as you can for what works for you. If you can geek out a little bit, that can be really helpful. Um, But it's not necessary. Mm. 
Okay. Beat Nick Rose says, I've heard Stephen talk about red flags of licensing. One red flag, if they want you to give them the licensing contract, this is my scenario. The licensee wants me to send them a contract. Thoughts? Yeah, more than likely, it's pretty rare. So more than likely, Beatnik, um, it ended up that way because you didn't know how to guide it. Um, it was probably your fault. You didn't know how to direct them and you didn't guide them. And you can still do that. But, you know, um, it's much better if they send you their contract and then you bloody their contract and fix it up. If you send them your contract, you know, you need to pay an attorney a bunch of money to write that up and then send it to them. One thing you could do is just start out with a term sheet and do the base terms. If you can't agree on the base terms, there's no sense in a contract. So you might just send them the base terms to make sure they understand. One red flag about it is they may have, may have done a licensing deal before, so they don't know what to send, you know. And so just starting out with a uh, term sheet, like here's some basic things talk about. And then those are things to discuss and argue a little bit about because companies that haven't done licensing deals before, they will argue about really basic stuff that's non-negotiable. But when we're with our students, we teach our student to be patient with them, explain it to them. They argue about it for a week and they're like, well, fine, but lower minimum guarantees or whatever it is. So in general, I wouldn't recommend that you try to do a licensing deal by yourself. And licensing attorneys are notorious deal killers and they'll charge you a whole bunch. You're going to be better off with us helping you do the deal. But if you're going to do it by yourself, I would do a term sheet. Keep it simple. Now, if you don't know what licensing terms are, then, you know, that's kind of hard. Now, if they are one of these companies that hasn't done a licensing deal, it's the blind leading the blind. It's going to go nowhere. They don't know what they're doing. You don't know what you're doing. And then you get two attorneys involved, you get your licensing attorney involved, and then they just start, you know, being aggressive. And that doesn't work out well either. So um, congratulations on getting interest. Um, but you need somebody helping you that's done licensing deals before. It's, it's hard. That's one of the harder parts of the process. We teach our students to do it all the time so they can do it themselves next time. But uh, you need to get somebody that's done licensing deals before to help you straight up. You just do. Um, you can't play a guessing game there. Um, no, 502. I think we're I think we're up on time. All right. So let's let's call it a night, guys. Um, it's 502, my time. I know it's later for some of you. And I, I really appreciate some of you. We've had some people in Europe, like they stay up, it's like the middle of your night. So thank you for having faith in me and my answers that you want to stay up till the middle of the night. Um, I just want to always say, I like, I like winding these up with uh, what I like to say, which is, you know, at some point in your life, you started becoming an inventor. Most of you, it just happened to you one day, right? And now it's part of who you are. So you need to make the effort now to learn the business side to make these things happen. Because after a while, you come up with idea after idea, and it starts to become a little thorn in your side if you're not reaching out to companies and doing anything about it. And if you wait long enough, you will see your idea in the market. Somebody else will come up with the same thing. If you don't make an effort to reach out to companies, you know, you're going to see it. And hey, that's okay. You know, work on another product. But that gets, starts to get kind of frustrating. Um, so I want to encourage you to be the inventor that you see yourself as. And that includes more than just coming up with ideas. It includes the boring stuff. All the stuff that we teach you to do and guide you to do, which is getting it out in front of companies. And 
you know, I interviewed, um, where's my, where's that product? No, let me get it. I'll wait one second. Joe. So I interviewed, I interviewed Jeff. He did this, uh, popping bat and you put the balls in there and it pops up and then you can hit it yourself. And he licensed this. And I, I asked him what was the major, I asked him about work ethic. And he said it's it's so much more about work ethic than the product. You can have really so-so products and you have your work ethic, you're doing great. And you can have great products, but if you're lazy, it's not going to happen. Um, so now if you've got a great product and a great work ethic, even better. But it does not need to be in this mind-blowing idea. You just need to do the work and get it out there, you know. Ida says, absolutely correct, Andrew. Um, Bohemian Hill says, thank you. Mike, thank you, Andrew. Dong Wo, thanks a lot. Clyde, thank you. Dong Wo, good talk. All right. So um, that's what I'll leave you with as well. Have a work ethic. You can't just have ideas and not do any work. You can't just have ideas and throw money at patent attorneys and prototypers, nor should you. Um, you got to do the work, and we're here to teach you how to do it. So whether that's just watching your YouTube show or reading our books or uh, becoming a student of ours, we'll help you however we can. Um, so I want to remind everybody to take care and keep inventing, and we'll catch up with you next time. See you guys. Bye.